Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Health Connect South Radio. Brought to you by Sherwick Media, your health and wellness content specialist. Health Connect South is to serve the health community as a sustainable platform for regional health collaborations. Through our collective work, we seek to broadly define and advance the Southeast role in the future of health. Serving as a gateway between health industry silos, we seek to provide unique and meaningful partnership opportunities in health. We are pleased to share this information and these experts with you as part of our mission. Want to be part of the discussion? Join in, tweet questions and comments at HealthCon Radio. Good morning, everyone. It's C.W. Hall. Thanks for joining us here this morning on Health Connect South Radio. We appreciate everybody that makes time to check out the health experts we bring to you every week. I'm joined in studio as normally always. It's getting to be <laughs> Almost a, always. a really good habit. Yeah, it's a habit now. I've got Diana Keogh of Sherwick Media Group, and they're uh, a partner with us here in the show. We're very pleased to have them uh, make this available to the community and learn about uh, all these cool companies that are coming up uh, doing things for the health of our community. Uh, we're going to be joined in studio by Lucy Ide, President and CEO of Remedy. Good morning. Nice to have you back with us today talking about your, uh, your health platform that you have facing the diabetes population. Thanks. Glad to be here. And uh, real quickly, we're going to talk to uh, a patient ambassador for the Lights, Camera, Take Action on MS initiative. Uh, it's uh, an organization that is taking action against multiple sclerosis. As I got to looking at the uh, disease, I didn't realize it was as prevalent as it is. Two and a half million, roughly, people around the world, 400,000 people in the United States. Uh, I guess a couple hundred new cases uh, per, at least per year, coming on um, being identified around uh, our country and it's kind of a debilitating disease it's uh, immune modulated response uh, they're not exactly sure what causes it think it might be environmentally related um, it ends up damaging the uh, the protective lining of the nerves uh, which results in all kinds of things that would obviously be related to that you have uh, many of those people lose the ability to walk um, bladder and bowel function can be affected numbness and tingling obviously and other things um, and a company called Genzyme is an organization that uh, developed a medication that apparently has some good uh, results for those folks that are uh, dealing with disease. And uh, today we have one of their patient ambassadors, Joelle, joining us by phone today. Um, coming up here in Atlanta uh, later this month, there's a, an event here in Atlanta that's the bringing the uh, lights, camera, take action on MS program here to Atlanta, and um, they actually have with them as a, a, a supporting uh, spokesperson, Madeline Stowe. Apparently, one of her family members has dealt with the disease as well and trying to raise some awareness and uh, bring about a little bit more attention to this disease so they might possibly find what causes it and maybe uh, advance the, the rate at which we're helping people. So, Joelle, thanks for taking a couple quick minutes with us. Hi, thanks. And from what I understand, um, as, as somebody, you, you yourself actually dealt with multiple sclerosis yourself and, and uh, continue to do so today. Yeah, I do. I um, actually, in kind of twofold, my mother had multiple sclerosis when I was young. Um, and then I was diagnosed uh, when I was 38 and had been dealing with symptoms for several years before my diagnosis. Um, so I'm, I'm so happy that people are now talking about it. You know, back when my mom had it, uh, it wasn't, it was so uncommon and people, people really didn't have, there was no dialogue there to speak of. Um, and, and now thankfully we've moved into a different place. Um, there's actual treatments for it. And for many years, 
um, there was only one, you know, one treatment that was given in different ways. And we've moved into a new kind of a new time where there are options for treatment um, and that people can get on something that actually works best for them based on side effects or based on how they're doing and, and what their issues are and how they're affected by their multiple sclerosis. Well, can you talk about what the process was like for you when you were you were beginning to develop symptoms, going to a physician to try to find out what's going on? What, what was that process like? What was happening with you? What were your symptoms, Joelle? Well, um, my first symptoms at first were uh, my daughter was about six months old. I have three children. And when my daughter was about six months old, I woke up one morning and had little to no sensation from the neck down. Um, I could move and I could function, but I couldn't feel anything. Um, went to the doctor and we discussed everything and kind of decided that it was a result of uh, pinching something in my neck or my back. And then I think like a lot of people in their 30s, that was kind of one of my health wake-up calls. I had always been a very, very active person. I, was, I started running when I was about eight years old, so um, it was kind of hard to keep up with. And um, in the middle of a triathlon about three years after that, I started having really bad pain in my knee and hip, and they weren't functioning very well, mm-hmm. um, and actually lost control of my bladder during that race. And as that day progressed, things got worse. I was having trouble chewing and swallowing, um, numbness in my face and in my scalp. And that was kind of the, the my second kind of event that led me to get all the testing done that I needed to get done to get on treatment um, and to have an actual diagnosis. So, so how, how long did it take? From between, there, things got a little bit Yeah, I was asking, how long, how long did it take from the time that you started having these symptoms? And, and they sound pretty dramatic as you described them. How long did it take them to finally say, gosh, I think you have multiple sclerosis? Well, it took really about a little over three years. So it took a while. Um, it wasn't a quick process, and that's not everybody's experience. I think that's one of the key things about multiple sclerosis is that it's such a different disease for each person. Like you said, it has, you end up with these lesions on the brain. So it depends on where your lesions are and what part of your body is affected. So, so not everybody has the same symptoms. So depending on how you present, sometimes if you don't, you know, if you don't have a lot of loss of function and things like that, you just say, oh, you've got some numbness and tingling. That's not so bad. Um, and, and for me, it was manageable. But after that second episode, um, that's when I really started to notice some deficits in my, my energy and, and how I was walking. My knee and hip weren't, <laughs> weren't functioning the way they should. Um, so that definitely was more impactful, you know, that time around on, on my life and on what I was doing. And Joelle, how did your symptoms differ from what your mom had gone through? I mean, was there any point that you, in the back of your mind, you were thinking, uh-oh, this might be what my mom had? Yeah, it was definitely in the back of my mind. I'm um, from the very beginning. And, you know, I really, and my mom had a different type of multiple sclerosis. I have what's called relapsing remitting. So I'll have a episode and then recover, you know, to some degree. And then I can go, you know, a long time without having anything else happen. So those first two episodes I had, like I said, were about three years apart. My mom had something called primary progressive, where it was just a constant, um, constant worsening from the time she got diagnosed. I see. So it was in the back of my mind, but then it, I wasn't presenting the same way, and and that had been my experience with the disease. So um, it was, and it was something that we talked about, you know, discussed with my physician, and um, but but, it, but again, even with that history, it's one of those things that still took a while to get to the right diagnosis. Yeah, that's what I find kind of interesting. Having had a family member that experienced the uh, 
the disease already. And given the fact that you were having neurologic symptoms, it seems interesting that it took a while. It's um, it's good news. It sounds like that uh, they're, and from the clinical perspective, a little bit more tuned into this might be this problem a little sooner than maybe it was when you were initially I, diagnosed. I'm not getting that impression at no? LCW. In fact, how did they actually go about in diagnose to diagnose you? Was it a blood test or, I mean, just again, for the benefit of the listeners, saliva test, how was it actually diagnosed? Um, so my diagnostic process, I after the after that triathlon, I went to my doctor and they did um, some x-rays of my knee and hip to make sure everything was okay. And his nurse practitioner, who I adore, um, said, you know what, let's look at, your mom has a history here and, and you're having neurological symptoms. Let's just go ahead to be on the safe side and do an MRI of your brain. And that was when they picked it up. So, so from there, like many other people with MS, you know, you, you get that one, that one thing and it's kind of that aha, here we go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was blood work. Um, they do a lot of blood work to rule out other things more specifically. Um, and make sure that these these symptoms weren't presenting because of another source, um, and then a, a lumbar puncture to test the spinal fluid, um, and look they look for certain types of white blood cells that are typically present with multiple sclerosis, and then again to rule out other causes that it could be, and that was how that was how we kind of arrived at that at that conclusion. So then, once you got diagnosed, then you took some medications. You you mentioned before we went on the air that uh, that. I guess some of the medications you were taking previously kind of gave you some trouble. Uh, ultimately, you began taking uh, a medication c- called Abagio, uh, I believe, made by... Uh, ultimately, I did. Yeah. So take me through that, because uh, I guess that's probably how you became to be a part of the Lights, Camera, Take Action on MS initiative. Yeah, and, and this is how I got involved with Genzyme. So... Um, I started taking at first an injectable therapy, and for a little while I did okay on it. But after after time, I started my fatigue was getting worse. I was having issues with my memory, um, and and like I said, I was a, I was big into fitness. I was a triathlete when this when this got really bad, and so my coping mechanism had always been exercise. If I was happy, I went for a run. If I needed to think about things, I went for a run. If I wanted to do something active with my children, we went running or went mountain biking. And I got to the point where none of that was an option for me anymore. And so emotionally, that took a toll. Additionally, to physic, in addition to the physical parts of it, it was starting to take more and more of an emotional toll on me because the way that I had always kind of coped with life was now something I couldn't do. Um, but my MRIs at that point were stable. Nothing was changing on my MRIs, but, but the way my life was changing was not in a, not in a direction I wanted it to go. Right. So I went, I went back to my neurologist and I had a very honest conversation with him about, you know, I'm, I'm at the point where I feel like this treatment is worse than what was going on with me before I started on this. And at that time, there were um, a couple of new treatments for multiple sclerosis and two of them being oral. And ultimately, I chose the, the Genzyme product, the Abagio, because I felt like that was the one that, that when I looked at the side effect profile and looked at what the treatment involved, it was the one that seemed to be the best for me. And I think that that kind of embodies the whole idea of this lights, camera, take action on MS in that it, it did require me as, as the person living with MS to go to somebody and say, hey, wait a minute, there's got to be something something different here. There, there's either an issue that needs to be resolved or we got to switch things up. And I think kind of trying to get that message out there to people living with multiple sclerosis and their caregivers that 
you know, this isn't a one-size-fits-all disease anymore, and the treatment is, isn't one-size-fits-all anymore. And there's options, and the more people you get talking about it, the more people who might find somebody they can relate to through their experiences, um, the better off it is for the person who's living with the disease. So talk about the Lights, Camera, Take Action on MS campaign. What are they trying to achieve? Sounds like helping to help folks be able to advocate for themselves and then, as you mentioned, take some actions to the extent that they're able physically to be active and and, um, try to do some things on their side of things. But talk about uh, what when someone attends one of the events, because I know that it's a a campaign that's going to various cities to try to raise awareness and folks can come and get some education. Can you share a little bit about what type of information that they're going to get? I know that uh, Madeline Stowe, for example, the actress that many people know about, uh, has a story of her own with a family member who experienced MS and is taking part in the events as well. Can you share a little bit about what folks can expect to, to have from the event and when it's coming here? In Atlanta? Sure. Um, so what they can expect, so Madeline is, um, her father had multiple sclerosis, so she has kind of her point of view um, from there, and and again, kind of a little similar to, to my experience in that when our parents had it, there really wasn't much as far as options, um, and again, it was kind of a quiet thing, and and now we're moving into a different, a different time where people are talking about it, and one of the neat things that they've we've kind of identified is the emotional toll that it takes, the physical toll that, that the disease takes and ways maybe to manage some of those issues. So coping and exercising strategies so that physically you can be as healthy as you can be um, managing stress and, and ways to kind of pace yourself so that you can be um, available for the best parts of life. Um, and then Madeline is, she, she'll speak and she'll speak to her experience. There's also going to be a life coach there who will um, discuss her, her experience with MS and, and kind of helping with as many of the strategies that you can to optimize, you know, all aspects of, of living with the disease. Um, and that's going to be at uh, the Atlanta Marriott and, and Alpharetta, and that's on June 27th. And it starts at 11. There'll be lunch. There'll be meet and greets with Madeline, and there will also be question and answer sessions. Um, where people can either log on and submit a question or live question and answer sessions there. So that, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of um, questions in general, sure. and especially when it's in a big group, because there's always a question that somebody wants to ask that they're not going to, but, yeah. but somebody else is going to ask it. And so I just think it just facilitates people getting as much information as possible um, in an environment where they're surrounded by other people who are supportive, who are you know, going through the same thing or have been through the same thing. And sometimes those those experiences are the things that help people the most. Well, talk about where folks can go online to get some more information. I'm sure there's some social media sites and website that uh, folks can visit to try to either register for the event or get some additional information. Yeah, so Genzyme has a couple of great websites. One of them is specifically for this event, and it's Take Action. Uh, ms.com. I'm sorry, take action on ms.com. And then there, there are other, and that one's specific to this event. And that'll give you more information too, and it gives other people stories. And then there's also the ms1to1.com, and that's one spelled out one.com. Okay. And that's one of their support sites that Genzyme has. Do you have any last thoughts before we let you get back to your day? <laughs> 
um, I just look forward to seeing people at Atlanta. I hope as, as many people that, you know, are, are going through this take the opportunity to get out there and, and talk and just share in that supportive session. Um, I know that it's, it's kind of becoming, you know, hopefully something that's more and more, more talked about and that people really start helping each other manage through this. It's kind of one of these quiet things. So. And Joelle, is there a charge for this event? I'm sorry. Is there a charge for this event? I mean, is there a cost to? to no, it's a it's a completely free event. No, the, you know, you'll have lunch and um, just a, a good day with other with other wonderful people. Uh, that's great. Well, I really appreciate you taking some time this morning to join us to to share some information about the Lights Camera Take Action on MS campaign that's got an event coming to Atlanta, as she mentioned, on the 27th of June at the Marriott in Alpharetta. Go to uh, TakeActionMS.com, take get some uh, extra information about it, register for the event there. Um, Joelle, uh, I really appreciate you sharing your story. I'm sure there's folks around the community here that can relate to what you're talking about, whether they themselves are dealing with it or a family member is. So uh, to bring this event here and have some opportunity to learn a little bit more and uh, collaborate with some other peers and get some great information is uh, much appreciated. Thank you very much. Well, um, we'll let you go, and uh, we'll jump over here, and we'll talk to uh, Lucy Ide over here with Remedy. Stick with us. So, Lucy, you've joined us in the past to talk about uh, how you're fighting uh, diabetes with the uh, prevention, the Diabetes Prevention Council. But uh, your your day job, if you will, is very much faced uh, facing the the folks in the community that are dealing with diabetes, and it's a lot of people. I start, I was looking at the website uh, for Remedy, and uh, it's significant spend, a significant population of people. It was by 2050, we're going to have one in three. Is that right? that they expect to have diabetes in the population? That is right, yeah. That's crazy. That's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. And and from what I was seeing on the website, the health system is spending $500 billion per day. Is that right? No, so $500, 500 billion dollars mm -hmm. by 2050. Oh, okay, 50. by 2050. But that's still, I mean, I can imagine what, it, what we are at right now. But... Uh, a huge cost and then when you add to that the the things that come downstream from having diabetes like heart disease stroke um, all of those things that obviously tax our health systems uh, financial capacities uh, a big problem yeah I mean these chronic conditions are the major cost driver for our health system and um, you know cause seven out of ten deaths in the US today and the the tragedy is that they're preventable and and we can do a much better job of managing them and from what I understand, Remedy is, is essentially uh, it's a cloud-based application that uses health data and, and allows clinicians and patients to track key markers of the patient's you know, health data to begin to manage their, their uh, glucose levels a little bit more effectively, obviously, than helping to prevent many of the things that come along with diabetes. Am I on track? Yeah, good, good summary. So we're a cloud-based software program that provides data analytics and decision support and patient engagement for diabetes. Well, can you, can you kind of rewind a little bit and tell me a little bit about your story? How did you get to this place? Because as I was looking through the, through the team, it looks like there's a few IDEs on the team. So it sounds <laughs> like there's a, a lot of interest from, the, from just your family's perspective that, that makes you want to tackle this problem. 
you know, that's one of the stories of being an entrepreneur and starting a company is sometimes the only people who you can convince to uh, be crazy enough to join you are your family members. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I started Remedy uh, a little over three years ago. And I'm a physician by training. I went to Emory and have an MD and a PhD in pharmacology as well from Emory. But had spent some time working in mobile technology development and venture capital before that. And uh, was really motivated and challenged by the dysfunction within our healthcare system, I guess is the way to put it, of um, so much opportunity where we could do things better. And I think chronic disease management is a great example of that, of, um, you know, we spend more per capita than any other country in the world, but we don't have the results to show for it on healthcare. And uh, our health system, mostly because of the reimbursement model, was really structured around treating complications. We do the best job in the world at, you know, treating your blockage in your, you know, coronary artery or treating a stroke. We're fantastic at that acute management. But um, we're really not so great at the preventative right. management of, of health issues. And um, as a physician, that really bothered me. If, you know, why, why can we understand? And you know, we have the best scientific research in the world and the NIH funding. And how can we understand these diseases so well and manage them so poorly? And so that was really part of the motivation of uh, starting Remedy and getting into this area. Of we've, we've got to be able to be more effective at this. And technology is really one of the main components going forward. Um, And the opportunity is there to do it today because of the shift in payment models, because of healthcare reform, um, and because the, you know, dollars are now aligned with the clinical outcomes that we need to be working on. So um, that's really created the opportunity to, for people to refocus on how do we better manage these diseases in a more forward-looking, preventative way. I do believe that that particular change in focus is one of the good things that have come out of some of the big sweeping changes that are occurring as it relates to our you know, legislation trying to tackle the whole healthcare mm-hmm. scene. Um, and and as you mentioned, you know, heart disease is another one. We, we can live a long time after we have a heart, heart attack and we go in for a heart surgery. Uh, you can live a long time, maybe have a second one later later on down the road, as some of my family members got to experience. Um, but you still get heart disease. And we, we know it's out there. We know a lot of the things, or at least we think we do, to, to prevent it. So with with something like diabetes, um, in, your, in your opinion, as it relates to the effective way that we can, because it, it has such a for many people, obviously, if you have type 1 diabetes, I mean, there's a physical reason why you have it. But for many of us, it ends up being kind of a lifestyle-related or uh, th- that's a big component or it can be. So how do we tackle that side of things to, from the prevention perspective? Right. I mean, and I think a lot of people don't realize that type 2 diabetes, which is what we have you know, previously called adult-onset diabetes, um, that is tied to the obesity trend. And that's really the trend that's been driving the growth of type 2 diabetes um, in the U.S. and around the world, um, that there is a huge genetic predisposition there. There's there's a genetic component to that. So it does run in families. It's more prevalent in the African-American community. It's more prevalent in the Hispanic community. Um, So, you know, that is true. But, you know, you can have a risk of developing type 2 diabetes and it still comes down to a lot of those healthy behavior choices. And so that's part of the work that I was on the show previously talking about with right. the diabetes prevention and design team is um, how do we help people understand that it's within their control and they can do something about that. 
Uh, but once they do have uh, type 2 diabetes, and there are millions of Americans, as you referenced, who do, we can do a much better job of <clears throat> managing it. And it's been you know, proven every which way that if you manage blood glucose control, the bad things associated with diabetes don't happen. Stroke, heart attack, you know, losing limbs due to poor circulation, et cetera. I'm certainly intrigued by the, the ways that we in, in healthcare can use data, uh, and I, I think that there's a lot of things coming for us that we can really begin to expand the pace of research, for example, um, being able to head off a lot of different things, and, and from what I understand, that's one of the things that you're doing here, is you're using the cloud computing component, the ability to analyze data to the benefit of the clinician to, so that they can be a little bit more strategic, a little bit more proactive, uh, maybe a little bit more real time with regards to making changes or how frequently maybe they touch the patient, for example, with c contact and communication. Can you talk about how your platform works? Sure. And, and as you said, there's tremendous pressure right now on clinicians and health systems to more proactively manage um, populations of patients as well as individual patients. And uh, data analytics is a key component to that. And it's really, um, you know, impossible for our health system to move forward in this model without having the data and the data analytics around that and around population health management. So um, as many people with diabetes who have a family member with diabetes are familiar, there's daily testing and monitoring of diabetes. So people are pricking their finger at home and measuring their blood glucose. And that's a uh, tremendously rich data set that unfortunately has been very poorly leveraged in the past. Yeah, because um, we don't necessarily, that doesn't get necessarily sent to the doctor's office every day. It's, uh, right. I'll see you in a few weeks or a few months or next year or whatever. Or only when you have a problem. Right, right, right. So people are, you know, maybe writing that in a little notebook or they're storing it on the device called a glucometer that they use yeah. to measure it at home. And um, despite the fact that back in the 90s there were some great studies, very large study here in the U.S. and one in the U.K., um, looking at the fact that if you used that data to manage people's glucose and keep it in range day after day after day, that the bad consequences didn't happen um, and that you could dramatically reduce the morbidity and mortality associated with diabetes. So back to your question is, um, yes, we need to provide that data to the healthcare team because this is really a collaboration. We can't ask patients to manage themselves right. alone, and we can't ask clinicians to manage patients without that patient being part of the team. It's, it's really... Um, a collaborative effort. And so, you know, how do we share the data with the clinician, but how do we help them, uh, you know, take meaningful insight out of that data? And clinicians are, you know, under more and more pressure around efficiency, the number of patients that they have to see in a day, mm -hmm. even as we shift away from a fee-for-service model to a pay-for-performance or more population-focused model. Um, we're not getting away from the challenges of efficiency. If, you know, I have 30, 40 patients to see <laughs> right. in a day. Yeah. Um, and so we can't just give, you know, a stack of paper with a bunch of numbers to a physician or a nurse practitioner. And look through this. And say, you know, you have, <laughs> you have eight minutes with this patient. Figure yeah. this out. Right. Um, and so, you know, our approach is how do we share data in real time? Mm -hmm. How do we derive insights from that data that help them at, answer a very specific question? So when I, you know is a, if I put my physician hat on when I see a patient, you know, I have a really specific question in mind of, you know, how are you doing? Are you meeting your goals? Are you having complications? And uh, the data and the software needs to help them address those questions very concisely and um, 
has to be meaningful to them. And, and we know that from previous technologies that, you know, physicians and other clinicians, they, they won't use technology if it doesn't help them and yeah. solve the problem they're trying to answer. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the big things about the EMR is, in theory, it's supposed to help you be more efficient. It's supposed to help you be able to effectively document what you're doing. Oh, and hopefully, by the way, maybe be able to see an extra patient or two or three in a given day without feeling like you worked harder. In theory. Yes, yeah. in theory. Because the, uh, inevitably, when I speak to physicians about the EMRs, it's rarely a, oh, my gosh, this is such an awesome thing. I love it. Um, because it is challenging to make that interface be intuitive so that it's not taking me away from my patient now. I'm looking away and all of that kind of yeah. stuff that it takes away from the patient experience, for example, but also um, doesn't take more time to actually do it than just writing things down on a piece of paper. Well, Lucy, with what you're just describing, um, how does it work? I mean, that's the theory. In theory, that's what it's doing, but how does it actually work? Right. So the um Consumers, as we often, you know, now call patients at home, um, because they really are consumers of healthcare. So individuals at home who are testing, who have diabetes, they are able to track what's happening um, with their diabetes, not just what's their blood glucose control, but what's all the data and context around that. And we all generate so much data throughout our daily lives, whether it's you know the fitness tracker we were on our wrist or data coming off of our telephone and. Um, about where we are and what we're doing and, you know, who else we're meeting with so we can build a really nice story around what's happening in their life. Um, and that's helpful to the individual as they go back and look at what was going on with my diabetes. And, you know, they can tell, well, I was at the beach that day and I forgot to take my insulin with me. So that's why my glucose was higher than usual. So I'm not going to worry about that anymore. Um, you know, and many of us can barely remember what we had for breakfast yesterday, much less what we were doing 10 days ago or two months ago. So if we can capture a lot of that data, we can help the individual themselves have a better understanding of what's going on with their diabetes. But if we can also share the right data with their healthcare provider, and again, it comes down to what's the question they're trying to answer. And often that's, is this individual's glucose well controlled? You know, that's one question that every diabetic patient who they see, they're trying to answer. And if it's not, what am I going to do about it? And there's a really interesting study I saw a few months ago that in the typical primary care encounter, the physician only has about a minute and a half to two and a half minutes to actually think about the patient. The rest of their time is spent documenting in the EMR or doing the physical exam and sort of doing other actions. And so they have this very short window of time to sort of process and think and make a decision. And so what we let them do is get a visual understanding of where is this patient versus their goals, where they should be. And then in a forward-looking way, they can simulate, well, what if I put them on this drug? What if I increased your insulin at bedtime? You know, we've been really trying to better control your diabetes with diet and exercise, and we're not getting there. So let me show you what it would look like if we started you on this oral medication today. And so it both helps the clinician make a very targeted decision about that individual which is something that we talk a lot about, you know, personalized medicine or individualized medicine. But it also helps bring that patient into the conversation because, you know, they, we want them leaving that day and going home to their loved one and saying, you know, what did the doctor say today? Well, they started me on this new medication. Well, why? And often the answer is, I have no idea. You know, I, they, they handed me a new prescription I'm supposed to take and I'm supposed to go back in three to six months and we'll see what happens. And I'm also not sure when I'm supposed to take it or why. Right. 
Right. And all of those details matter. And so if we can make that a conversation and sort of open that black box of medical decision making and the patient can feel like they're participating in that, um, that's another piece that helps drive patient engagement, which is something you know we all talk about in the healthcare field a lot. Um, but we have to remember those are individuals and it's their life and it's their money and it's their medication and it's their routine every day for remembering to take that medication at dinner time. Um, and so they really need to own that and, and understand why they why that's going to help them. And you said it um, actually, well, in real time, where they are, like going to the beach. But what, a, I mean, diet and exercise is really important. Is it, mm-hmm. is it self-reporting what you're eating? Is it self-reporting what you're exercising? How does that work? So they can connect other apps and devices to um, Diabetes Plus Me, which is the name of our software platform. Um, and, you know, as the previous guest was talking about, MS is so different in every patient. You know, diabetes is different in every patient as well. And we all have preferences around what fitness tracker we like or what apps we like on our phone. And so we uh, provide a lot of flexibility for patients and they can, you know, connect the fitness tracker like a Fitbit that they're already using. They can track it through our app if they want to, if they don't, you know, have access to one of those $100 fitness trackers. So we try to um, sort of meet them where they are. And while exercise might be key for one patient, diet may be more important for another patient. And so they are more focused on that than they are on the exercise component. And are they being told which is more important? Because a lot of diabetic patients actually don't realize the similarities or even the um, how it's connected. Right. And so I think um, helping highlight those connections is part of our job and, and part of what's important. And um, often with diabetes, I think one of the frustrations is it's a lot of... Um, you know, details in the moment today, choices I make about what I eat, exercise I do, taking my medication, and I may not see the payoff from that for months. Um, There's a test, blood test called the hemoglobin A1C that Mm -hmm. is measured in the lab that's sort of the average blood glucose control, and a lot of physicians and patients use that as their report card for how they're doing with diabetes. Um, But you may not have that more than two or four times a year. And we really want to show people short-term wins. And so we let them start visualizing those data sets together. I've, here are my exercise minutes. Here's my blood glucose control. Here's, you know, I've been tracking calories or carbohydrates. And can I see some short-term benefit before maybe I even see the longer-term payoff there? So on the patient end of the application, then I'm able to, as you mentioned, I can either use my device apparently to mm-hmm. to do because it's got accelerometers my phone will do all kinds of things as far as tracking different things um, so i can interface with my activity right you're saying that i can then also is it within the application or tying in with something like fitness uh fitness there's some different types of nutritional type like my logs fitness pal. Uh, yeah, yeah fitness right. pal that's what yep. i was groping for um that lets you really get very detailed with regards to everything that you're consuming down to the you know the most innocuous snacks if you will so that you can really get very specific and and track very closely what you're consuming so you can do all of that and enter that kind of data into the application correct correct and they link those up just like when you're using an application and it wants to connect to Facebook and you I give see. it permission so you give it permission to talk to those um, other devices or applications. And we do the same with the glucometers. And so people can link their glucometer to our app if they have a glucometer that's Bluetooth enabled or talks to their smartphone. Um, and so as soon as they test their glucose, it exists in our application. Okay. Yeah. And so from from the physician side of things, how does it, how do I interface with the application so that I can begin to then kind of add some advice to 
the patient's course. Yeah, so um, you mentioned the EMRs earlier, and that sort of is the mainstay of clinician workflow. And so we integrate into the EMR, into their clinical workflow, um, you know, working with that group and the particular EMR that they're using to say, you know, where in your workflow are you addressing these topics with your patients? So, you know, there's other, um, you know, physical exam and history and, and background information that they might be talking to the patient. But when they get to that point that they're saying, is your, you know, diabetes well managed? Is your glucose controlled? Are you meeting your goals? Then we are sort of seamlessly integrated into that user experience because, again, it's all about efficiency for these clinicians and they need to be able to move quickly through their workflow. So, as I'm seeing a patient, I'll, you know, with a click of a button, be able to switch over into Diabetes Plus Me and leverage the decision support tools um, that we offer that don't exist in the EMR. We're talking with CEO of Remedy, a, uh, a cloud-based platform that allows clinicians and patients to interface and better manage the the, the disease of diabetes. And uh, Lucy Eide's been describing to us how the platform works. And so as it, on the clinician side of things, because we, we know that uh, what 85% of the physicians right now are on an EMR and the rest of them have to be within the next year, I think, if not two. Um, so it, as, a, as an application, it then ends up being kind of like a plug-in that, that interfaces with their EMR. So they say, I've got thus and such EMR, you can still plug right in and interface. Yeah, that's a, that's a great analogy to make if it's um, like a module or a plug-in. With so the there EMR. wouldn't be a reason based on my EMR that I wouldn't be able to use the application, I guess, essentially is what I'm getting at. So I, you can interface with just about any Yeah, and the EMRs EMR. are really, um, you know, a lot of people are working on the interoperability problem and sharing yeah. data between these different platforms, and it's it's getting better. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting there, yeah. So once I'm in my EMR and I'm documenting, I'm interfacing with Diana, she's my uh, diabetes patient's for patient today and we're, we're going through the interview, then I can kind of actually flip into the Diabetes Plus Me portal, if you will, and, and begin to see the data there. and Right, and you can see the data that she's been tracking at home. You can see the progress she's been making, and you can leverage those tools to be able to make, you know, say, what, what's the decision we need to make today about this patient if they're not meeting their goals? Um, you know, how is, you know, this medication going to be the right choice, or how is maybe adding some exercise in here going to help them better control their diabetes. That's and, cool. Um, so all that all that information, even my exercise that's coming in from my Fitbit or whatever device, and then my nutritional information that'll be displayed right there. Right. How does it? How does you? How do you do it? I mean, obviously we're on the radio, so you have to kind of describe it. But I mean, is it using? Um, is it basically a kind of a list of data points, or is it? Are there some graphic displays, if you will, that kind of show trend lines and different things like that that you can kind of at a glance see? Oh, we're heading in the right direction, or or not? Yeah, it's it's heavily focused on the data visualization component, both um, in terms of the historical data and the trending, but also in terms of this forward-looking sort of predictive modeling of, you know, it, here's where we are today based on your past data. This is the model of what your diabetes control looks like going forward. And now let's look at changing variables around that. Let's look at changing a medication or changing a behavior and how that's going to help you better control diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, we all process data much more effectively visually than we do in, you right. know, yeah, a big list of numbers. Uh, right. You'd have to pick it out. When a, a big blip, you can easily see, obviously. Um, clearly, primary care is one of the big places it would need to be, endocrinology. But um, how are you driving this so that the clinicians know it's available to them? It sounds like a powerful tool. Um, that, are you that would going be, after clinicians or are you yeah, going after consumers? That's what I was wondering is from a distribution model, mm -hmm. is it 
in educating the public so that the patient goes and says, hey, I've got this application, you know, and then they kind of lead the, the provider to it, or is it the other way around? Yeah, we're really going to the health systems um, and providers. Again, if we go back to the changes in reimbursement models and sort of the change around payment structure, um, there's certain health systems who are early adopters of that. There are accountable care organizations and others mm-hmm. who are um, getting into these shared risk contracts, meaning that they are now sort of financially on the hook for quality metrics and are they doing a good job of managing conditions like diabetes. Um, and so while we would love for patients to be going to their doctors and saying, Ask There's your this, doctor. Yes, this uh, <laughs> software called Diabetes Plus Me that you know I'd like to use. And um, we have found and others have found in the past that that's really hard for the clinician to do, right? If I have 500 patients and they're bringing 40 different apps to me, sure. um, if we go back to that efficiency and clinical workflow optimization, you know, I can't do that because they're not going to all be integrated into my EMR. And so we're really coming at it from the health system side and saying across the system, we will integrate this into your workflow, make it accessible to the physicians and make it accessible to the patients. As, as we've gotten to get into the Health Connect South Radio show, I'm becoming more aware of organizations like yours that are bringing solutions like this out. Are our physicians' offices being assailed by companies that are designing applications to plug into their EMR? Gosh, that's a big word for you this morning. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was just waiting for an opportunity to use that. They are. I mean, and and you see more and more health systems that have a chief innovation officer and Uh have sort of dedicated teams to look at new technologies. Um, I think if they had their choice that all of this would be, would already exist within their EMR or within Mm -hmm. their population health platform. Uh, but that's the way innovation happens, right? It doesn't usually start with the big companies right. and as a new feature. It usually starts with smaller companies like ours who were trying to solve problems in a much more creative and nimble way. And so, um, you know, they are. I, I think it's confusing to some of you know, these health organizations who are just getting calls every day about different technologies. Um, and so really finding the ones who are, you know, early adopters who are wanting to be innovative is very important. Do you have any competition? So, you know, diabetes is a big problem, and therefore there are a lot of people working on different aspects of that. Um, And, you know, that's important. Just as across our health system, none of us are going to solve these problems by ourselves. So uh, there's been some great innovation around the medical devices in diabetes. I referenced earlier some of the glucometers that are now more like consumer electronics that we're all familiar with. Um, they synchronize with your iPhone or your Android phone. They have cellular chips and bot embedded in them. Um, so there's some really interesting up-and-coming companies in that space that have created um, better devices for testing glucose at home, and they're building some analytics around those devices. Uh, Many of those companies have become our partners who we support their device as part of our platform. Um, So in sort of the diabetes-specific space, um, certainly a lot of investment money going into those companies and innovation happening there. Um, You know, on the data analytics side, uh, there are a lot of people focused on this population health Mm -hmm. uh, in general. Mm And I think one of the challenges there is um, it's hard to do everything well. And so um, some of those population health companies have filled a very important gap of fixing the interoperability problem. So they come into a health system and they take data from all the different EMRs that might exist in that health system. 
which many of us think is one, but it's not. There might right. be 10 different electronic medical record sure. systems across a system like Piedmont they'll, they'll or They'll be Amway buying or, physicians' offices and right. other health organizations getting assimilated into their systems. Exactly. So. And so they're aggregating all of that data, bringing in cost data and claims data, and, and that's a really important sort of uh, foundation for what needs to happen in population health. Um, and so while in some ways, you know, they may be seen as, as competition because they do have dashboards around disease states like diabetes, um, they are much, you know, they're a mile wide and an inch deep usually of, you know, where they're starting. And we are very, very focused on sort of, you know, vertical knowledge around diabetes and, and very specifically focused there. And it sounds like they are your partners as well. They are, because if we come back to the workflow, people want it integrated into mm -hmm. that system. And so we're working with them to say, okay, you know, you've laid the foundation. Now let's start building the value on that. That really Yeah, because it takes time, clearly, to be able to design a particular facet of the application to be as deep as you are. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to go wide to cover all these different systems, it's a monumental task to be able to do that. Yeah, it's hard to do both of those, right. for sure. So you've been around for three years. Are you, like, out and about? Or, I mean, are you being used? And kind of tell me where you are business-wise. Sure. So we launched our product um, about a year ago, this time last year. And we have been working with a health system out in California uh, called Heritage Provider Network. And they um, have one of the pioneer ACOs, which are those early um, accountable care organizations. <coughs> And um, they've been a great partner for us. We're doing a randomized controlled clinical trial there and um, also, you know, using our software more broadly with their patients. And some of the insights that they have helped us with of um, how this helps their business, right? Because in the end, it needs yeah. to help their patients, right. but it also needs to help their business. Mm -hmm. And um, what they had found before, what they sort of knew going into this um, is that it what matters is the number of touches, the number of times that they can reach a patient is what has the biggest impact on how that patient does with their diabetes management okay. or their heart disease management. Um, not necessarily the length of time that they spend with the patient at any one of those encounters. And so um, they have found that, that our technology has really become sort of a clinician extender in yeah. the way that, you know, pharmacists and nurse practitioners and physician assistants are physician extenders. They said, we're under such pressure to manage these huge populations, you know, diabetes and other chronic diseases, um, that we can't hire more people. That's not the solution. It's mm -hmm. not cost effective. And so we've got to use technology to make our people more efficient and effective. And that they have very much seen that. They've taken what maybe was a 30-minute face-to-face visit, and they can do, you know, six, five-minute telephone visits with a patient because they have access to the data through our system. They can use the analytics to figure out what needs to change with that patient. And they might reach that patient every week now instead of once every three months. Hmm. And with a year in of experience with a, with a health provider out there, are you beginning to be able to see some trend lines develop now with where the patient population was that is getting included with uh, you know your platform as to where A1Cs and things like that are going Absol now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're tracking you know A1C and improvements that we're seeing there. Um, I think it's equally interesting to look at some of the softer metrics like patient satisfaction and engagement. And yeah. so they have found that the patients who are using our software feel like they have a better relationship with their doctor 
even if they're not seeing them or talking to them more often, yeah. but they feel more connected. Yeah. On, on that note, I was wondering with the patient data that's flowing in through the Diabetes Plus Me application, is there push notifications, if you will? Is there is there something kind of dinging on the clinical end when there's maybe something getting out of, out of particular whack. parameters um, so that it might alert them mm -hmm. that they need a touch, for example. Yeah, so we let them uh, really set up what those parameters are and when they want to be notified. Okay, so um, you can set kind of a thermostat, if you will. If this gets out of this band, I want to have my case manager or nurse contact them. Right, and those case managers and sort of care coordinators play an important role there, and they're the ones really looking at that whole population and saying, who needs my attention right now? Right. Yeah. That's interesting, and you mentioned a study. Can you talk about what you're, what you're looking at? What are you trying to examine specifically there? Yeah, so the primary outcome of that study is change in hemoglobin A1c. Okay. Um, we're also looking at time to goal. And so what they had previously um, at this particular site been pretty successful at getting people to goal with their hemoglobin A1c in you know nine months. And we're seeing how much we can shorten that because if we can get people to goal in two or three months, that both opens up capacity in their clinic uh, mm -hmm. so they can see a new set of patients. But it also is preventing that individual from having, you know, sort of the invisible damage that happens when your blood sugar is not well controlled um, on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, so if someone takes two years to get their blood glucose under control, there's this background, you know, damage happening to their blood vessels right. and all of that, that chronic, um, um, you know, damage that leads to the long-term complications like heart disease and, and stroke. Um, so that's a, an interesting, you know, metric. And then we're looking at uh, really coming up with a composite score of, you know, which variables, which patients respond best to technology. I think that's a big question in, in the field. In terms of male, female, age demographics, that kind of right, thing? Right, right, right. That kind uh -huh. of thing. Or maybe, you know, even looking at some of the other medical comorbidities, you know, patients who also have hypertension or who have other um, chronic conditions. Because... There's so much innovation happening right now in digital health that um, we need more data around that to help identify how to use technology with different patient populations. And one of the challenges this group had at first was some assumptions around our older patients won't use technology. Yeah. And so let's not approach them with it. And they have really found that to be a false assumption. You know, they um, took some of their younger clinicians out to the waiting room and they said, okay, you all aren't asking them if they want to use this software, but look around the waiting room. Everyone in here, and they're all on Medicare, are all on their smartphones. Right. Yeah, they I was have say them. Heads they down, use them. <laughs> yeah. Playing Angry Birds. Um, yes, but a lot of them have <laughs> no apps downloaded. They're, you know, or maybe their grandchildren help them do Facebook, much to yeah, my, my mother-in-law will not text. Won't yeah. happen. Well, yeah. and my, my, my mother-in-law is on Facebook, much to my kids' horror. <laughs> um, but, you know, a lot of them don't, they will use technology, but they don't understand technology. Right, right, right. And that's where we need better data to be able to figure out how to best um, support and help different, you know, subpopulations of patients. So we're starting a project right now with uh, Medicare, uh, Medicaid plan up in the D.C. area. And texting has been shown to be a really successful, you know, patient engagement tool yeah. in that population. Mm -hmm. So we'll use a lot more text messaging there than we have in this previous study. Okay. Now, it's interesting you would choose um, a hospital system in California as opposed to trying to be in your backyard here. How did that come about? Um, one, I mentioned that they're one of the pioneer ACOs. They, as an organization, have a real commitment to innovation. So from their CEO um, of Heritage Provider Network down, there's really a mandate to innovate, have sort of carte blanche to try it and, and you know, 
do a pilot, see if it works, and then what works, we expand across the system. Um, those capitated care models are a bit more mature on the West Coast. They've been around a bit longer and more heavily used in sort of the Kaiser Permanente model yeah. um, than what we typically have here in the Southeast and in the Atlanta market. Interesting. So I'm, I'm looking at our at our time here, and, and, and as always, we were running down towards the end of it. As an organization, you're, you're, you're up and running. You're out there now. You're beyond the startup phase, technically. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're in the early phases, but you're going now. What do you need to make this go boom and, and really get it out there to the, to the diabetic population and the, clinic, the clinicians that are serving them? Yeah, so, you know, we are working with additional health systems, both the traditional models as well as some of the emerging models of healthcare delivery like retail medicine and employer-based medicine. So all of those organizations, you know, if you're listening to the show, we want to hear from you. Give us a call if you have a problem with diabetes. Absolutely. Um, But to really expand that, it's also through the partnership models that we've talked about. So as we start partnering with the electronic medical record companies and population management software companies, um, that'll help us grow very quickly. I see. Anything else that uh, when you sit around the boardroom, you're going, gosh, if we only had this and that? (laughs) Besides world domination. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Customers. That's, you know, it's all about the customers at this phase of company growth. Well, talk about where folks can go and get information about it. I I, I was looking at the website. It's got some nice information there. you can also, so our website is remedy, R-I-M-I-D-I dot com. You can also go uh, to the product site, which is diabetesplusme.com. All right. Any yeah. final thoughts for you before we uh, have to turn you back to the day? It sounds like you two will be hanging out for the rest of the day, planning on tackling diabetes here in the community. We are. So thanks again for having me, and I look forward to coming back on the show sometime and sharing results down the road of how we're doing. Well, I, I'm definitely interested in bringing you back sometime so we can talk more about how the study is going. Are they getting, I would imagine there's no shortage of di- diabetic patients flowing into their office that they can enroll in the, in the program. But uh, right. um, I look forward to hearing more about how that type of research is going for you and then uh, get a little bit more information about just the general outcomes for the, the health systems that you're serving. And also to hear, um, you know, in the few minutes that we have left, um, kind of your, again, you, you've been immersed in this um, diabetes prevention and management, but, uh, you know, your belief and really strong belief system about where we need to start in managing and preventing diabetes. Kind of talk a little bit about that. We have a few minutes left. Sure. So in the few minutes left, um, you know, while, while my day job is focused on how do we better manage diabetes and those uh, people who already have been diagnosed with this condition, um, to fix this problem as a, as a community and as a society, we really need to back up to the prevention. And there's been a lot of focus um, in some media this year around um, the National Diabetes Prevention Program, and that's really focused on people who have prediabetes. So they're starting to show some signs that they're not handling sugar as well in their blood. Um, And that's fantastic, and we're going to continue. There are about 80 million people with prediabetes today, and we need to intervene there and and stop the progression from those people going on to develop type 2 diabetes. But if we're going to stop this trend, if we're going to not end up with one in three people having diabetes by the year 2050, we've got to back way up to kids and um, to, as a community, developing better habits around exercise and diet and awareness um, of, you know, I can do something about this. This isn't something that has to happen to me. Just because 
a lot of people in my family or in my community have been affected by type 2 diabetes doesn't mean that that's my natural trajectory. And uh, so we're working on a program uh, in the school system and with a bunch of tremendous partners around Atlanta to say, how do we make that part of the dialogue, um, you know, for kids in schools and in their households? And how do we get those kids to go home and say to their parents, you know, do you have diabetes? You know, tell me about that. Well, if you do, why aren't, why aren't we exercising more? Why aren't we eating better? Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of the same way that, you know, the smoking campaigns were done uh, decades previous um, of, you know, making kids that um, mechanism for change. Yeah, I was going to mm-hmm. say, they can be a fulcrum. They can really, yeah. and, and it seems that they can really latch on to that, the children, when they get educated about things like that. They want to, I, I think they enjoy that role of being able to bring something like that to their family and influence them in that way. Yeah, and we don't talk to kids about smoking and say, don't smoke because it'll turn your teeth yellow or it's, you know, smells bad. We say don't smoke because, you know, you'll die of lung cancer. And in some ways, I believe the sort of healthy eating and obesity messages need to be a bit more focused on it's not about being bullied. It's not about the physical appearance. Yeah, aesthetics, yeah. It's about the It'll long-term <laughs> health consequences. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're going to if you don't do this, you're going to die. Yeah, a slow one, too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Wow, it's it's um, been a pleasure to get to sit down with you and talk about what you're doing with Remedy. I think it's a, a very cool platform, and like I say, I really look forward to bringing you back and, and being able to get more into some of the, the success stories that I'm sure are going to be flowing out of the application. Thanks. Thanks again for having me. How about you, Diane? Any last thoughts before we jump no, off? We've got a um, couple of minutes here. You know, with, uh, knowing Lucy as long as I have, it's been really exciting to watch the company go from really the back of the napkin to where it is now. It's exciting. Um, and as a fellow female entrepreneur, um, it's really nice. There's a there's a group of, of women in this town that are smart and um, taking medical problems, medical issues, and thinking through them and really bringing to the community a, a great solution. So um, just, you know, I know I'm not your mother, but I'm really proud of you to see. <laughs> <laughs> well, Thanks, Diana. get out there to their website. It's R-I-M-I-D-I, remedy.com. They've got uh, social media also. You can get some great information both on the website and social media. If you haven't done so already and you're listening to us today, go over to Twitter and follow us there at HealthCon Radio. And, um, you know, tie in. We're, we're always sharing information, uh, not just from the show, but across um, a variety of health information sources so that you can get some great information there. The folks from Sherwick Media Group are always sharing some great information that will help you uh, have a, a healthier you and family. So uh, we're, we're grateful to have them as partners along the way. Make sure you check out the Sherwick Media Group as well um, to uh, get tuned into how you can tell your story, whether you're a healthcare company or um, you're an organization that's trying to improve the health of the, the employees within your company. They can certainly help you tell that story and share that great information. So thanks to them. We appreciate everybody that's made us a part of their day today, and uh, make sure to make an appointment to see us same time, same place next week. We'll see you then. This show is brought to you by Sherwick Media. Sherwick is the health and wellness solution, content that inspires change. Learn more at www.sherwick.com. That's sharewik.com. And link up with us on Facebook and Twitter.